It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Typically, when a company is failing or a sports team is failing, they want to get to a place of success. And so there's really two main things that change. Uh, First, there's a change in leadership. There's a change in the person who's in charge. And so companies that are failing will bring in a new CEO to lead the company. Teams that are failing will bring in a new coach or, or a new general manager to lead the team. And so first, there's that change in leadership. But then second, there's a change in operation. There's a change in the, the way in which things are run, a change in the system, in the structure, in the culture of the company or the team. So if the company or team wants to go from failing to succeeding, they don't just change leadership, they also change the operation and the way in which things are run because they understand that both of those things are necessary to take something that's failing and bring it to a place where it starts to succeed. Now the reason I bring this up is because I believe that's hopefully a helpful illustration of what the author of Hebrews is going to be sharing with us this morning in the verses that we're going to look at. You see, the author of Hebrews has been trying to convince the initial readers and us that Jesus is greater than any other high priest. But now he's going to take this truth about Jesus being our great high priest one step further. He's going to help us see that Jesus' priesthood, the, the fact that he replaced the Aaronic priesthood, that's not the only thing that needed to change. There was a, a bigger change than that. There was also a, a change not just in leadership, but a change in operation. Not just Jesus replacing the high priest, but the whole law, the whole old covenant, everything connected with the old high priesthood is also needing to change. And so there's not just that change in leadership, but also that change in the practice and the operation and the way in which things are run. And so when God established Jesus as our new high priest, notice he didn't establish Jesus as our new high priest connected to the old covenant, connected to the old priesthood. When he established Jesus as our new high priest, he also established a completely new operation, a new covenant, a new way in which things run that are under Jesus's leadership. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to reveal to us in our text this morning is that the old Levitical system, the old covenant under the law, the old priesthood, it had some significant problems. It wasn't able to accomplish God's ultimate plan. The old Levitical system, the priesthood, the covenant, it was like a failing company. And God changes this problematic system and priesthood and covenant by doing two very important things. First, He brings in new leadership. 
He replaces the old Aaronic priesthood with Jesus' priesthood. And second, he brings in a change in operation. He changes the old problematic system and priesthood and covenant that was failing, that was not able to fulfill and accomplish God's ultimate purpose. And he replaces it with a new covenant, a new priesthood that would be able to accomplish God's ultimate plan and purpose for us. Now, in the first 10 verses of chapter 7 that we looked at last week, the, the author built the case for why this new leadership under Jesus Christ as our high priest is better than the old leadership uh, connected with Aaron and the priests that followed him. And the author did that by expounding on the historical accounts that we have of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And he used that historical account to give us two reasons why Melchizedek and Jesus are greater than Abraham and the entire Levitical priesthood. And those two reasons were first, Abraham and his descendants through him voluntarily tied the best he had to Melchizedek, who is not his descendant. And second, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and the greater always blesses the lesser. And so the author starts chapter 7 expounding upon this historical record that we have of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And now he's going to move on and expound upon the only other record that we have of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, and that is in Psalm 110 verse 4. Now, the author has uh, quoted this verse a couple times already in this letter, but now he's going to really go much deeper in explaining and expounding upon this verse and the significance of it in relationship to Jesus' priesthood and this new covenant that we have. And so here in Hebrews Chapter 7, verses 11 through 9, the author is going to be dealing with two main things. In verses 11 through 14, the author is going to reveal to us that the old covenant and the Levitical priesthood were inferior because they could not fulfill God's plan of redemption. And then in verses 15 through 19, the author is going to reveal that the new covenant and the priesthood of Jesus is superior because it can fulfill and accomplish God's plan of redemption. Now, these two main things that the author deals with are a huge reason why these Jewish believers who have come out of Judaism should never, ever consider leaving Jesus and going back to Judaism. You see, the new covenant through Jesus is the covenant where we come to God through His grace. And the old covenant... That was through Judaism as a covenant where we come to God through our works. So if these Jewish believers choose to leave the new covenant and go back to the old covenant, leave Christianity and go back to Judaism, they are leaving the ability to come to God through grace and going back to coming to God through their works. And you know, this is something that I think is relevant to us because this is something that you and I often struggle with as well. You know, we, we recognize that we're saved by grace through faith, but then there's something that often happens. I think it's kind of just our default sometimes that we kind of want to fall back 
to relating to God based off of what we do. You know, we want to be able to earn things. We like to earn things, and so we want to earn approval from God. We want to earn certain things in our relationship with God. Instead of just living based off of the grace of God and the work of Jesus on our behalf, we sometimes fall into going back to a works-based relationship, trying to say, hey, Lord, you know, if I do this, I'm a, a good boy, a good girl, you're going to love me more, you're going to do more for me. You know, it's this works-based attitude and relationship that I know I have fallen into in my Christian life, and I think it's something that is common for us. And so, you know, what we're going to look at this morning is going to be a great reminder of why we should never want to leave the grace relationship we have through Jesus and His work on our behalf to go back to a works-based relationship that's based on my works and not the work of Jesus. Now in verse 11, the author is going to start his argument for why the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the new priesthood of Jesus. And he's going to do that by asking a very thought-provoking question in light of what Psalm 110.4 actually says. Remember, he started uh, this chapter just reflecting upon and expounding upon Genesis chapter 14 and what it says about Melchizedek. And now he's going to expound upon what Psalm 110.4 says. And so before we look at this thought-provoking question, let's read Psalm 110.4 just so that we're aware of what it is that the author is going to be expounding upon. It says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I mentioned this before, but I think it's important to be reminded of that this is a messianic psalm of David. And so what David is doing is he's prophesying about the future coming of the Messiah and something that would happen with the Messiah. And he's saying that God has sworn that the Messiah will be a priest forever according to a different priestly order than the Levitical priestly order. He's going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now it's important to note that when David made this prophecy, the Levitical order of priests had been in operation for hundreds of years. And so the priestly order is operating and going, and while it's going, all of a sudden, the Lord through David speaks this prophecy that there's coming a different priestly order. One that's not going to be connected with the Levitical priesthood, but it's going to be according to the order of Melchizedek. And so with that in mind, let's look at the thought-provoking question that the author gives us here, starting in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 7, which says this, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Now, before we get into the significance of this question, there's a word that we really need to define that kind of paints and shapes this whole question, and that word is perfection. Notice the author starts, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood. So what does he mean when he is speaking about this word perfection? Well, the Greek word translated perfection means fulfillment, to have completion of that which is sought to be accomplished to bring to a perfect end. 
So this word would be used to describe the total and complete fulfillment of something, to bring something to a perfect end uh, of something that someone had planned to accomplish. Now, the way that the author uses this word, he is speaking about the total and complete fulfillment, the bringing to a perfect end of something that God had planned to accomplish. So what was God's ultimate plan? What did he want a complete fulfillment of? Well, God's ultimate plan was to make a way for us to have a personal and intimate relationship with him. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they had a personal and intimate relationship with God, but that relationship had a huge problem. And that problem was sin. And sin caused mankind to no longer be able to have that intimate, deep, personal relationship with God. And so God established a plan to redeem us back to Him. A plan to make it possible that once again, you and I could have that intimate relationship with Him. Now, since this word translated perfection means the total and complete fulfillment and perfect end of what someone had planned to accomplish, and since it's used in the context of God's perfect plan for mankind, the word in its context means the total and complete fulfillment of God's perfect end of what God had planned to accomplish by redeeming us back to an intimate relationship with Him. So the question the author is asking is, if perfection, if this total and complete fulfillment and perfect end of what God had planned to accomplish for mankind by bringing us into this intimate relationship with Him, if that perfect plan was through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Now when the author says another priest, something interesting to note here is this Greek word translated another means another of a different kind. And that's important to know because the author is making clear that he's not saying another priest just like all the other priests in the lineage of Aaron. You have Aaron and then his son and then his son and then his son. And now we just got another priest just like those. No, he's saying another priest of a different kind. Not a priest like the Aaronic priesthood, but a different kind of priest from a different order, the order of Melchizedek. And so what the author is asking is if the Levitical priesthood was able to completely fill God's plan to redeem us back to an intimate relationship with Him, then why was there a need for another priest of a different kind who would arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? You see, the author is using Psalm 110, verse 4, where God is clearly declaring a need for another high priest and the need for a new priestly order. And that is why God swears that this new priest in the Messiah and this new priestly order would come according to the order of Melchizedek. And the point the author is trying to make is that God would not have established this new high priest and this new priestly order if the old Levitical priesthood was able to fulfill God's purpose in redeeming mankind back to an intimate relationship with himself. 
If the Levitical priesthood could fulfill God's plan, the author is saying, then why did he prophesy of another priesthood coming? What would be the point? What would be the purpose? If this priesthood was good enough, why would God establish a new one? Now, I think there are two important things for us to understand about God, which will help us understand the logic of this question and what the the author is trying to communicate with this question. And the first thing I think we need to understand about God is that God always has an important purpose when he does something. God doesn't just randomly do things for no reason. There's always a purpose in why he does the things that he does. And so if God establishes something new, like a new high priest or a new priestly order, we can be confident that God had an important purpose in doing such a thing. He would never establish an unnecessary priesthood. He would only establish it if there was a significant purpose in it being established. The second important thing for us to understand about God is that when God changes something, it's always to improve it and to make it better. You see, God never changes something to go from better to worse. He never establishes something new that is bad and replaces it with something old that is good. You see, God doesn't sit on his throne and say, you know what, I see this good thing that's producing so many wonderful things. Let's replace it with a bad thing that's going to produce a bunch of horrible things. God doesn't operate like that. If he's going to make a change, it's going to go from something that's bad to good, something that's worse to better. And so since God made a change from the old Aaronic priest to Jesus, the new high priest, since he changed the old covenant to a new covenant, what can we know from that? We can know that there was something lacking, there was something wrong, there was something worse about the old priesthood and the old covenants, and when God replaces it, he's replacing it with something that is new and that is better than the old. And that is what the author of Hebrews is highlighting in his question here in verse 11. God's perfect plan to redeem us back to an intimate relationship with him was not able to be accomplished by the Levitical priesthood and the Old Covenant. And that is why God established a new and better priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. A priesthood that would be able to fulfill God's plan to redeem mankind back to an intimate relationship with him. Now, in verses 11 through 14, the author is making his case to show why the Old Covenant and Levitical priesthood were inferior because they couldn't fulfill God's plan to bring us back into this intimate relationship with Him. And in these four verses, the uh, the author is basically making two main points in order to help us understand it. And his first reason comes from what we just looked at here in verse 11. And that reason is this. The Levitical priesthood was not able to perfectly fulfill God's plan of redemption, which is why God established a new order of priesthood according to Melchizedek. So the Levitical priesthood, the Old Covenant, they couldn't accomplish God's plan of redemption, so God's established a new and better covenant, a new and better priesthood that would accomplish His ultimate plan of redemption. Now, the second reason the author makes for why the Old Covenant and the Levitical priesthood were inferior is verses uh, 12 through 14, which says this. 
For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke not concerning priest, nothing concerning priesthood. The author just built the case in verse 11 that the priesthood has changed because of, because of what God says in Psalm 110.4. And, and now he's building a case and declaring since the priesthood has changed, of necessity there's also a need for a change of the law. You see, the priesthood of Aaron was totally linked to the law of Moses. The function of the priest. Everything that the priest would do, everything that the priest would wear, the whole sacrificial system that guided what the priest would do and when it could do it and the day that it could go in the Holy of Holies, all of that was connected and linked to the law of Moses. So you couldn't have the priesthood of Aaron without the law of Moses telling the priests everything they were to do. So those two things were completely linked together. Now, the thing that the author wants us to understand is that the priesthood of Jesus is not linked to the law of Moses like the Aaronic priesthood was. You see, the law of Moses declared that only those from the tribe of Levi could be priests. But the author tells us that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah and that no man from the tribe of Judah has officiated as priest at the altar under the law of Moses. You see, Moses spoke nothing about the tribe of Judah concerning the priesthood. So the point the author is making is that since Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, his priesthood has no link to the law of Moses. Since the law of Moses clearly says the only link to the priesthood is through the tribe of Levi. Now that's important for us to understand because it helps us understand the main point the author is trying to make in these verses here. You see, if you have a completely new priesthood that has no link to the law of Moses, then the function of the new high priest, everything that the new high priest does, is going to be linked to something different than the law of Moses. And this is why the author says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. You see, if you have a different priest from a different order linked to a different law, then by necessity, there must be a change of the law in this new priesthood. Kenneth West wrote this. The priesthood after the order of Melchizedek was put in the place of a priesthood after the order of Aaron. But that could only be done by changing the law governing the priesthood. Thus, if a transfer to a new and different order of priesthood was to be effected, it must be by reason of a transfer to a new basis. The law governing the priesthood, as found in the Mosaic economy, must be abrogated in favor of another, which would provide for an order of priesthood that would function successfully in the very thing in which the Aaronic priesthood failed. So what the author wants us to understand is you don't just have a change in the priesthood, you also have to have a change in the law, because the law and the priesthood, they're linked together. And since they are linked together, it's necessary when one changes that the other changes. If the Aaronic priesthood changes and it's linked to the old covenant of the law, then guess what? That has to change 
as well. So the second reason the author gives us for why the Old Covenant and Levitical priesthood were inferior is because the law and the priesthood are linked in their failure so that when the priesthood changed, the law had to change in order to fulfill God's plan of redemption. You see, it wasn't just the priesthood that was the problem. It wasn't just, you know, we got bad priests, and that's the reason that God's plan of redemption cannot be fulfilled. No, there was a bigger problem than the priesthood. There was the law. There was the whole old covenant. All of that was part of the problem. None of that was able to fulfill God's plan to redeem us back to an intimate relationship with himself. And so God had to make a complete change with all those things that were linked in their failure to produce the ultimate plan of God. So the new covenant in Jesus is not added to the old covenant. It completely replaces the old covenant. And that should be wonderful news for us because guess what? None of the weaknesses, none of the problems of the old covenant, of the old priesthood, of the law come with it to the new covenant, the new priesthood of Jesus. All the weaknesses and all the problems stay where they are because God established something completely new and it's free from those problems, which is why it is able to completely fulfill God's plan of redemption where the other one was weak and unable to do so. Well, now that the author has given us two reasons why the old covenant and Levitical priesthood were inferior, he's now going to move on to give us two reasons why the new covenant under Jesus is superior. And the first reason he gives for why the new covenant under Jesus is superior is in verses 15 through 17. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, here the author is contrasting the priesthood of Aaron and its descendants with the priesthood of Jesus. And he's using Psalm 110 verse 4 to help make his argument, his point. Now notice the author says, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment. Now something that I brought up as we've looked at the Levitical system that's important for us to be reminded of is that the Levitical priests and the high priests from Aaron, they didn't receive their position because of some great moral character that they had. There was really only one main qualification that they had to meet. They had to be either from the tribe of Levi, or if you're the high priest, it had to go even farther than that. You had to be the firstborn descendant of Aaron. And so their position was based on heredity. Not on, oh, look at these guys. These are so qualified. These are so godly. It was just based on their heredity. They were brought into this position because of the fact that they were born of the tribe of Levi or of the lineage of Aaron. And that's why the author says they were priests according to the law of a fleshly commandment. Now, I don't like this translation here because I think it leads people to connect things that the author is not trying to say because typically when we read something fleshly, our mind assumes sinful. And so he's not saying, hey, you know, there was this sinful commandment. When he speaks of fleshly, he's just speaking literally of something that was 
physically done. Uh, the ESV, I think, translates it better. It says, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. And the author is just saying, hey, we know what qualifications are required for the Old Testament priest. They have to have that physical descendant from Levi or that lineage from Aaron. That is really, that's it. You know, if they got that, they're going to get in. And so he's contrasting that with Jesus. And I think it's interesting to note that since there wasn't a lot more to the requirements, there was a lot of wicked and evil high priests and priests in general. I mean, all you do is just look at when Jesus was here on this earth. The priests and the high priests from the majority of them, they crucified him. You know, Jesus had lots to say about how far they were from God, how evil they were, how wicked they were. And so, you know, just because they were born of the right tribe and they had the lineage from Aaron, it didn't make them moral, godly men. And so we, we recognize that, yeah, that that's not so great. That qualification isn't the best thing to put someone in such an important spiritual position. But the author is contrasting this saying, hey, well, Jesus... The reason that he is in the high priest role is not because of this law of fleshly commandments. It's for a different reason. It's according to the power of an endless life. You see, Jesus' qualifications were far greater than those of the Levitical priesthood because they just had, you know, heredity on their side. But the author says what Jesus' qualification was is so much better, a power of an endless life. Now this Greek word here translated endless means that which cannot be caused to cease, cannot be brought to an end, cannot be caused to finish, thus it is indestructible. This word would have been used to describe something that someone tried to destroy, but it was unable to be destroyed. It was something that was indestructible. Now, when the author uses this word to describe Jesus, he's saying that Jesus became a priest according to the power of an indestructible life. A life that people tried to destroy, but they were unable to destroy. You see, what the author has in mind when he speaks of this is the resurrection. Because right before the resurrection was the crucifixion. They tried to defeat Jesus. They tried to destroy Jesus. They tried to kill Him and keep Him dead, but death couldn't hold Him. He rose from the dead, proving he was indestructible and that he has an endless life. So Jesus is the high priest according to the power of an indestructible life that was proven by the resurrection, which shows it's so much greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And the author uses Psalm 110.4 to help make this point. For God testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The other saying, hey, we were told, you know, hundreds of years before that when the priest would come, he would be an eternal priest, a priest forever, this indestructible priest. Kenneth West wrote this. In the case of the Levitical priest, no matter how ill-suited he was and reluctant to take the office, the law made him a priest because of his pedigree. He did what he did so far as official duties were concerned by reason of an outside compulsion. 
In the case of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he performed his duties as high priest not by reason of the fact that any official necessity was laid upon him, but by virtue of a power in his own nature compelling and enabling him. The power of a life that even death could not dissolve, for he raised himself from the dead. It is here that the term indestructible is applicable, for he died on the cross as the high priest offering atonement, but it was necessary for the continuance and completion of his priestly duties that he raise himself from the dead, thus manifesting the power and the nature of that indestructible life that is his. So the first reason the author gives for why this new covenant with Jesus Christ is so superior to the old is the priesthood of Jesus is based on the power of an indestructible life that rose from the dead, not on physical lineage. Jesus' qualifications to be our high priest are so much greater. They're connected to His deity than just being connected to the fact that my ancestor was Levi or Aaron. The second reason the author gives us for why the new covenant and the priesthood of Jesus are superior is in verses 18 and 19, which says this, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So once again, the author is making this contrast between this old covenant and priesthood versus the new covenant and priesthood of Jesus. And he's showing us through this contrast why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The author tells us, on the one hand, there is something negative about the law and the old covenant that it couldn't do. And on the other hand, there's something positive about this new covenant in Jesus that it could do. So let's start with the negative thing the author tells us about the law and this old covenant and what it couldn't do. He says, on the one hand, there is the annulling of the former commandment. The Greek word translated annulling means to declare invalid, to not recognize, to make ineffective, to do away with something that was established. This word was often used in connection to treaties and laws that were established, but when they no longer wanted to recognize that treaty or recognize that law, it would be annulled. It would be done away with. Today, many people annul their marriage. They don't want to recognize any longer what was established, so they get divorced. So the author is telling us that the former commandment, speaking of the law, was annulled. It was done away with. It was no longer recognized. It was declared invalid. And the reason, this is important, the law was annulled. Why? Well, why would God annul the law? Why would He make it invalid? Why would He get rid of it? Because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. See, here the author is sharing with us the big problem with the law. Now, first we need to understand what the law is. It's just God's perfect standard. And you think, well, how could you have a problem with God's perfect standard? The perfect standard reveals to us just that. Here's the perfect standard of God. And it also reveals to us something that we don't like all the times that we don't meet 
the perfect standard of God. All the times that we have failed to live up to the perfect standard of God. That's what the law does. It's the perfect standard. It's the measuring stick. And we look at it and we think, I have so far, fallen so far, I'm nowhere close to that perfect standard. Now, even though the law is God's perfect standard, the author reveals that it has a great weakness and unprofitableness towards us. Towards us is the key. It's weak and unprofitable for you and for me. And its weakness and unprofitableness is in the fact that it can't make anything perfect. You see, the law is God's perfect standard, but it has no ability to make you and I perfect. And that's where the problem really exists. It can show you you're not perfect. You haven't met the standard of God anywhere close, but it has no ability to make you perfect. It has no ability to help you become perfect. It has no ability to deal with all the imperfection that you already have demonstrated. You see, the law is like that light that you flip on when you go into your room and it reveals how dirty and messy your room is. The dirt on the floor, the clothes everywhere. But guess what? That light does absolutely nothing to clean that room. The law is like a dentist mirror. Shoves that mirror in your mouth and he can see the cavity. He can see the problem with your teeth. But you know what? That mirror, that doesn't do anything to fix your tooth. You see, the law points out the problem of sin in our life. It shows us God's perfect standard. But it is weak and unprofitable to us because it cannot help us overcome our sin. And that's a big problem. Because God's ultimate plan for us is to redeem us back to Himself so we can have that intimate relationship with Him. But the thing that's keeping us from an intimate relationship with God is our sin. So something had to be done with our sin in order for God's plan to redeem us back to an intimate relationship with Him to work. But the problem is, the law can't do anything. It's like, well, sin's the problem, so that has to be dealt with, and all the law does is tell me, I'm a sinner. Yes, I realize that. Now what? That's all I got for you. All I do is tell you God's perfect standard. That's all I can give. I can't help you anymore. That's its problem. It can't accomplish God's ultimate plan to redeem us back to an intimate relationship with Himself. So God annulled the law. He did away with it. He made it invalid. And He didn't just do away with it completely, as if there's no purpose anymore. He did away with it in the sense of coming to a relationship with Him. He did away with it as the means in which He would fulfill His plan. He did away with it in the sense of, hey, I'm going to use the law to be redeemed and have an intimate relationship with God. No, that doesn't work. So God says, I'm annulling that. That's not going to be the way in which I redeem mankind to myself because the law can't do it. But He didn't just get rid of the law. He replaced it with something that can accomplish His ultimate plan. He replaced it with something that could redeem us back to an intimate relationship with Himself. And the author says there's a, the one hand, the problem of the law, but on the other hand, there's a solution. There is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You know, the old covenant of the law, it didn't bring hope. There's no hope in a workspace relationship with God. Why? Because none of our works are good enough. We all fail. So if that's the way that people want to have a relationship with God, there is no hope in that. And I'm sure that many of you have tried that. 
Really, every single religion in the world uh, besides Christianity, if you kind of break it down to its bare fundamentals, is a works-based relationship. I'm going to work my way to the deity that I believe in. And there's no hope in that. Because we fail, and we fail, and we fail, and we think, well, how is it ever going to work? How am I ever going to achieve salvation, achieve love, achieve favor from this God when my works are never good enough? When I fail and sin so much. There's no hope in a works-based relationship with God. But you know what? You cannot be drawn near to God based on your works either. Our works will never be enough. If that is the way in which we're seeking to be drawn near to God, we'll never get to Him. No matter how good you are or how much better you are than other people, it'll never be enough to be drawn to God. You see, the whole Old Covenant... If you wanted to say two words that would describe it, I think great two words would be stay away. The whole Old Covenant, there's all sorts of barriers. Even if you look at all the barriers leading up to the temple and into the temple and the final barrier leading to the Holy of Holies. And there were so many people say, nope, you can't go any farther. Okay, well, you're a priest. You can go one step farther, but that's it. Oh, there's only one guy, the high priest, one time a year. You can go to the Holy of Holies. You can go into the presence of God. And the reason that the Old Covenant said stay away is because the thing that keeps us distant from God is our sin. And the Old Covenant never fully dealt with sin. It covered it. The whole sacrificial system wasn't a once-for-all dealing with sin. And we know that. Why? Because it had to continue every year, the same sacrifice. Constantly doing the same thing. Why? It was just a covering. It was just a temporary thing. It never really dealt with sin fully. And so there was always the barrier, always the stay away, always you better be careful not to get too close because your sin's a problem still. Under the new covenant with Jesus, we're told something very different. We're told to draw near. Old covenant, stay away. New covenant, draw near. Well, why can we now draw near? Because Jesus took care of our sin once and for all. He paid for it on the cross. He made it possible for us to draw near to God where the bulls and the goats and all the different animal sacrifices they just covered where Jesus' sacrifice was once for all and complete. And His sacrifice redeemed us back to an intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's why the author says, here on the one hand, you've got all the problems of the law, but on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope which we draw near to God. Because we have a better priesthood and a better priest, we also have a better hope. And we now have the ability to do something we couldn't do in the Old Covenant, and that is draw near to God. Our hope is in Jesus. It's not in the law of Moses. And it's definitely not in our ability to keep the law because none of us can. And the reason we're able to draw near to God is because the work that Jesus did for us on the cross, not the works that we try and do for God. Now it's interesting that the author of Hebrews really comes to the same conclusion about the law that Paul does in Galatians chapter 3, but the author of Hebrews gets to that conclusion in a totally different way. In Galatians, Paul reveals that the law is our tutor. It brings us to Jesus. It points the way. It shows us we don't meet God's perfect standard and it points us to the fact that we need a Savior. And here in Hebrews, the law is linked with a priesthood that has been annulled and replaced by Jesus' superior 
priesthood. But what both of them are communicating is the law was never meant to save us. It was really only meant to point us to our need for Jesus to save us. Jesus was the only one who could meet and fulfill God's ultimate plan of redemption. John MacArthur wrote this, What the old covenant could not do, Christ did. The old priesthood had its place in God's plan, but it was inferior and ineffective. It only pictured perfection. Similarly, the law had its place in God's plan. It represented God's truth and righteousness. It demanded perfection. For on the basis of it, the people received the law, but neither the sacrifice that pictured it nor the law that demanded it could provide perfection. Perfection is only provided in Jesus Christ. So the second reason the author gives for why the new covenant and priesthood of Jesus is superior is because the old covenant is weak because it can't make us perfect. But the new covenant brings us a better hope because it enables us to draw near to God and perfects us through Jesus. I want you to try to picture coming out of Judaism where the law was everything. The priests were everything. That was like your whole life. What the author of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish believers who came out of Judaism, man, that would have blown their mind. It would have been hard to listen to, hard to accept. I mean, it's one thing to say, Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron. Okay, we're trying to get our minds around that. And the author's like, no, no, no. I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind even more. It's not just Jesus is a greater high priest. It's the whole old covenant has been annulled. And it's been replaced with a completely new covenant. What do you mean? I don't relate to God based on the old covenant anymore? No. I don't come to God based on the sacrificial system anymore? No. Something completely new has replaced it, and the good news is it's so much greater. And this would have been a powerful reason for why they should never leave Jesus to go back to Judaism. What you're going back to, it's been annulled. Why? Because it cannot fulfill God's ultimate plan of redemption. Why do you want to go back to the thing that doesn't work? Stick with what God gave you, which is greater, which fulfills His plan to give you that intimate relationship with Him, and that is that relationship that comes through Jesus. You see, there's no hope in the Old Covenant. There's no drawing near to God in the Old Covenant, which means there's no good reason to go back to the Old Covenant. People do it. Many of them were tempted to do it. But they didn't have good reason to do it. They had horrible reasons, and they became very foolish if they made that decision. And I think the challenge for you and I is that we need to understand what this is telling us and apply it to our lives because we are often tempted to go back to relate to God based on that workspace relationship. Lord, I want to I earn I want to earn your approval. I want to earn your love. I want to you know, do better than other people. I want to achieve more. And I want to you know, be rewarded in the sense of like, all oh, because of my works, it's all based on me. Look at how great I am. You know, that's uh, something that we have a tendency to fall back into. But you know what? There's no hope in that workspace relationship with God because as much as we think we're going to do good for God, guess what? We're all going to fail. There's no drawing near to God based on our works. You and I only have access to God for one reason and one reason alone, through Jesus Christ and His work for us on the cross. So just like there's no good reason for the Jews to go back to Judaism, there's no good reason for you and I to go back to a works-based relationship with God. If you're doing it, you got a bad reason for doing it. 
You're foolish for doing it. Why in the world do you give up a grace base, new covenant that is so superior that's all based on the work of Jesus on our behalf, which is perfect, to go back to a workspace that's dependent on us who fail constantly. Well, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to say, hey, yeah, let me, let me be in this category where I know I'll never live up to it, where I know I'll always be a failure, where I know I can never achieve what God would want because His standard is perfect and I'm so far from being perfect. I'm going to hold on to the perfect Jesus I'm going to hold on to the grace that God gives me because of what Jesus did and the work that Jesus... I'm going to relate to God through Jesus. You know, so much you see in the Bible, those two words that are so amazing, in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, you have all these wonderful blessings in Christ. Why does it come? Because we're in Christ. We place our faith in Christ. Christ is the one, and His work has made it possible for all this to happen. So maybe you're thinking, you know, hey, that's great. You know, these Jews, they need to understand that there's this new covenant. Well, it's for us as well. We need to understand the new covenant. We need to be careful not to be drawn back to this old works-based covenant mindset. Remember where your hope is found. Remember where your access to God comes from. It's not you. Your hope's not in your works. Your access to God is not in your works. Your hope is found in Jesus alone. Your access to God is in Jesus alone. And realize that that is a wonderful, wonderful thing for you and I. The covenant of grace, so much greater than the covenant of law and works. And because of that, it should impact our daily life. We should want to walk daily in the covenant of grace. To daily relate to God based on grace, not on works that I seek to do for Him. And so my encouragement to you for this week is that every day this week you would seek to walk in the grace of God And avoid the temptation to go back and try to relate to God based on some works-based mindset. Let's pray.